And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, July 21st, 2021, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Asurlian, our digital editors Amelia Brust and David Thornton. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive... Amid defense spending debates, a call for wiser spending for the dollars they do get. Plus, VA gets a report card on its stewardship of extra money it got for fighting COVID-19. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, federal data isn't much use unless you can find it. That's why many chief data officers are running inventories of their data. The Treasury Department's Bureau of the Fiscal Service is also assessing the maturity of its data and trying to make it more shareable at the same time. For more, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Bureau's chief data officer, Justin Marsico. Right now, we're focused on four things which are helping us to modernize our data footprint. The first is data delivery. So Fiscal Service, like many federal agencies, publishes a lot of data for the public to consume. And one thing that we're focused on is making sure that we provide data to the public in a way that is actually accessible and understandable and follows best practices. Another thing that we're focused on is using our own data to do analytics, answer questions that help to make us more effective and efficient. A third thing that we're focused on is understanding our underlying data architecture and charting a path forward to a more efficient approach, which allows us to use our data to come up with insights in a way that we're not able to do today. And the fourth thing that we're focused on is making sure that we are coming together across the fiscal service to solve data challenges together. And one of the ways that we've done that is by standing up something that we call the Data Governance Council. And that is a way for executives across the Bureau, but also staff who work with data to come together and to highlight what we're doing with data and issues that come up with data so that we have a mechanism for resolving them. What steps is the Bureau taking to knock down some of these silos that prevent agency-wide, or in this case, bureau-wide data sharing? So one of the first things that we did after we stood up our Data Governance Council was to come up with an open data policy. And the purpose of that policy was to help translate that requirement to make our uh, our data open by default into steps that we can take in the Bureau. So one of the things that we did is we wrote this policy, we got it approved by our, our Data Governance Council, and it helps us to come up with some steps that we need to take as the Bureau to figure out, well, you know, we have this data set over here. Does that meet the requirements of the Evidence Act? We're just getting started with that work right now. I mentioned this in the opening, but one other thing that we think is really important is it's not enough for agencies to just put their data out there. You know, if their data exists in a PDF or a Word document, that's not the right way to go about doing things. So we've established some standards for ourselves that we have to follow. Our data has to be machine readable. That means that it has to be structured in a way that is easy for analysts to actually use. Our data has to have metadata. It has to have information that says what the data is, and that really helps people to understand what they're looking at and make sure they're making the right decisions about it. The next thing that we're going to tackle is trying to 
make sure that we have clear guidelines for sharing data inside of the fiscal service. And one thing that we found is that there's a lot of confusion about when it's okay to share data and when it's not okay to share data. So we're trying to understand what our next steps are here, but that's also something we're just beginning to study right now. Our Data Governance Council has the ability to make a final determination on whether a data set is shared from one part of the fiscal service to another, but we're just getting started trying to operationalize what that looks like. In the future, we want it to be really clear for an analyst to be able to know what the process is for that person to have access to a certain data set and to be able to use it to help the business. I guess getting back to the data silo piece of the conversation, is the Bureau going through any kind of data inventory right now? And if so, how's that going? We completed an inventory of our data as a part of a Treasury Department-wide exercise that was led by the Treasury Department CDO a couple of months back. Um, So we have an inventory of our data right now, and what we're focused on as a next step is using that inventory to start getting an understanding of what the maturity of our overall data is. So what I mean by that is now that we have an inventory of all of our data, we can start asking questions about the data, like how complete is the metadata? Do we have an understanding of the data quality of of each of the data assets that we've identified? And that kind of will give us a roadmap for what we should be addressing, standardizing metadata, coming up with data quality, improvement plans, looking for opportunities to find standards uh, or areas where we should be standardizing uh, data across the enterprise and then you know beginning to implement those standards. Going back a little bit, you had mentioned kind of the, the bureau-wide goal of getting to a, a central location for all the data. And just to maybe put a finer point on that, would you consider that central location something like a, a data warehouse or a data lake concept? And, and if so, let's maybe walk through some of the advantages of going through that approach. We are right now considering a concept called a data lake house, which is a combination of a data warehouse and a, a data lake. This data lake house concept is where the data community in general is moving for enterprise-wide data platforms. One of the main reasons for that is that it gives organizations and it will give our agencies some flexibility for the type of information that we can put in that environment. So with the data lake, you can have unstructured data, um, which is a technical way of saying like a picture or a, a, a PDF um, of a check or, or something else that um, isn't technically data, but might be useful for uh, AI or machine learning, semi-structured data, um, which might be like a document which has a couple of fields uh, that are structured, but then, you know, a part of it which is unstructured, and then structured data, which is what most people think about when we talk about data, rows and columns. Um, so the, the data lake part of the lake house allows for all those different types of data to come into our environment. And then the house or the, the warehouse part of it um, allows us to be smart about how we are structuring um, the structured data so that it's easy for us to do queries um, and to do reporting off of that. 
this is an area where, again, we are just getting started, um, but we're really excited about the, the possibility. We had been talking about CDOs kind of being the new kid on the block here as far as the federal C-suite. You know, I'm curious what role the Bureau's CIO, their chief information officer, has in helping you, helping the CDO inventory this data. What does that cooperation really look like between those two offices? There's a lot of debate in the data community about where CDOs should sit in an organization. There is one side of the debate which says that the CDO should be a part of the IT organization. It should report to the CIO. There's another camp which says that the CDO should be a part of the CFO's office. And there are other people who say that the CDO should report to the COO of an organization. At the fiscal service, we don't follow any of those. We have a unique reporting relationship. We exist within the accounting organization. And the reason for that is that all of the data in the fiscal service flows into the accounting organization. So it kind of is the center of the data world in the fiscal service. Now, that said, wherever the CDO sits in an organization, one of the most important relationships that exists is between the CIO and the CDO, or the organizations of the data and the IT function. And it's because you can't do much in the data world without running into the IT operations, the IT infrastructure, the security infrastructure. And it's really important to make sure that there is alignment about what the objectives and the long-term goals are for both of those groups. Tell me a little bit more about that Centers of Excellence. I would love to hear more about that and how Centers of Excellence for Analytics is kind of moving the needle on everything that we've been talking about. Yeah, we have a couple of centers of excellence within the the fiscal service. We have one that focuses on preventing improper payments. It's called our Do Not Pay Analytics team. And we have a another group called the Research and Analytics team, which helps to serve broadly the, the fiscal service when analytics questions or, or um, use cases arise. Um, and so the model that we've set up is that those specific use cases, whether they're advanced analytics or related to improper payments, they will go to those two groups. But if there's something that is more, I don't want to say basic to uh, to say that it's not important, but if there's something like you know building a dashboard or crunching some numbers to come up with an answer to a analytics question, we want to make sure that our workforce is able to do that without having to come to one of those two centers. For all of the work that we've been talking about here, this has been a fairly early journey for a lot of CDOs. And so one thing that we hear again, time and again, is the culture change piece of this is really tricky. The IT part is one thing, but especially when it gets to dealing with the workforce and and getting them to get some buy-in here, you know, that culture change can be uh, often met with resistance. So, you know, with that in mind, how can, you know, CDOs such as yourself serve as change agents for their agencies? And and how do you help build that data-driven culture? Uh, and, and what does that even look like, that culture change at the Bureau? Most CDOs have a goal of making their organizations data-driven workplaces. But as you mentioned, in government, CDOs are relatively new. 
So they are coming onto the scene, and in many cases, CDOs have relatively small staff. Um, so in order to make big change, they need the cooperation and active engagement of the rest of their organizations. And the mechanism for doing that is by changing the culture. I think about this as a supply and demand equation where our organization has a lot of data and we can work on improving the supply of that data by looking at its data quality, by looking at the way that the data is standardized, by making sure it's easy to get data out of our system. But I also think about it as the demand side of the equation being really important too. And what I mean by that is it's important for our workforce to be asking questions that can be answered with data. So we want people around the Bureau to be asking questions like, what type of metrics should I be looking at to make my program run better, run faster, run more efficiently? What impact is my program having on equity? Is it increasing equity? And as people start to ask those types of questions, that creates demand for data to answer the questions. And the other thing that, that we think about at the Bureau is when we start asking those questions, we need to be able to have a workforce that can do analysis and answer those questions on their own. You know, so the model we've set up is we have a couple of centers of excellence for analytics, which can do really state-of-the-art analytics like AI and machine learning and other types of advanced analytics. But while we are building those functions in a central way, we also want to be helping to upskill our workforce so that people can ask questions and then answer them themselves with data. And we feel like having that approach is going to help us to become a data-driven organization. We have kind of walked through a, a really great snapshot of the work you've been able to get done over at the Bureau. But, you know, for the, I guess, 79 other CDOs who sit on the CDO Council, what are perhaps some of the lessons learned you would offer them in standing up a CDO office? And what are maybe some of the takeaways you would leave with them? Okay, I will try to keep it to two lessons learned. The first is that it's really important for CDOs to align their data strategy with the overall strategy of the organization. And what I mean by that is that if you're sitting inside of an organization whose main function is serving individuals who are experiencing homelessness, then your job as the CDO should be to figure out how you can use data to help your organization do a better job serving individuals experiencing homelessness. And a lot of CDOs come into organizations and they look at data management practices, data quality, standardization, and all of that stuff is really important. But unless your overall data strategy is connected to what the organization really cares about, it's going to be hard to make change that's actually lasting. Justin Marsico, Chief Data Officer of the Bureau of the Fiscal Service, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, 
and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's chief of legislative affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. 
you don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, w- WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. 
Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.